Episode 42, The Portuguese and Spanish Colonies in the New World. Hi, my name is Clayton Mills. Welcome to A Short Walk Through Our Long History, a podcast where we look at the events of history and examine how those events shaped our modern world. Okay, in the last episode, we had Columbus finding the New World, but thinking that it was India. Meanwhile, Vasco da Gama found the actual India for Portugal by sailing the other way. Then, John Cabot found Newfoundland, only 500 years after Leif Erikson had found Newfoundland. Maybe they should have called it Reefenland. Anyway, by 1510, the seafaring powers of Europe had a pretty good map of the east coast of the Americas, from the tip of Canada up at the north down to the south part of Brazil, not all the way to the end of South America, but into Brazil a good ways. They also had a pretty good map of Africa, all the way around Africa to the Middle East, and then again around India, onto China, and to the islands beyond. The world map was starting to come together. But back to Columbus. After Columbus's first voyage, he made three more voyages, exploring many of the islands of the Caribbean, and also exploring some of the Central American coastline, from Honduras down to Panama. And he landed briefly on the South American coast in what is now Venezuela. A lot of the places that he landed still have the names that he gave them, including Hispaniola, St. Martin, and the Virgin Islands. Columbus was given the title Admiral of the Seas by the Spanish king, and he was appointed governor of the lands that he discovered. But he may not have been the best governor. There were a lot of reports of mismanagement, cruelty, and oppression, although there's also evidence that some of these reports were exaggerated by other Spanish settlers who are competing for power and their own positions of influence. It does seem to be accurate to say that Columbus and the other Spanish settlers enslaved and abused many of the islanders, keeping them as slaves in the colony and also shipping some back to Spain. So during Columbus's third journey, he was arrested by the new Spanish governor of the New World on accusations of this very same brutality, and he was sent back to Spain, but he was released by King Ferdinand. While he was there in Spain, he organized the fourth journey. So Columbus's fourth journey was really interesting. He sailed back to the New World with four ships, sailing back to Santo Domingo, which is on the island of Hispaniola and was sort of the capital of the new territories. But the new governor refused to let him dock his ships there in the harbor of Santo Domingo. Now, Columbus and his ships were aware that a hurricane was forming off to the east, and they tried to warn Santo Domingo and the other ships there, but no one would listen to him. So Columbus sailed away from there and found his own harbor around the other side of the island and harbored there safely while the hurricane was coming. But just before the hurricane came, a small treasure fleet laden with the first load of Spanish treasure, set sail for Spain from Santo Domingo. And of course, this Spanish treasure fleet sailed right into the hurricane. The only ship that made it through the hurricane was the one that was carrying Columbus's share of the Spanish treasure. So somewhere out in the Caribbean Sea, outside of Santo Domingo somewhere, there's a Spanish treasure fleet full of native gold. Later in that same fourth voyage, Columbus and about 200 of his men were stranded on the island of Jamaica because their ships were damaged in a storm. Though this new Spanish governor knew that Columbus and his men were there, he refused to send any ships to rescue them, and Columbus and his men were stuck there on Jamaica for six months. 
Eventually, a ship did rescue them and sailed them all the way right back to Spain, and they arrived in Spain in November of 1504. That was the end of Columbus's explorations in the New World. In 1506, Columbus died, leaving behind a complicated legacy. He had discovered and helped map many of the islands of the Caribbean and some of the mainland, and he was instrumental in setting up many Spanish colonies. But he's apparently not a very good governor, and he was cruel and oppressive both to his subjects and to the islanders, and he killed and enslaved many thousands of the islanders. I'll have to come back to this idea and talk about it a little bit more at the end, so I'm going to come back to it at the end of the episode. After he died, Columbus's reputation and his legacy were pretty bad, but it was revived and improved in later years, especially by later English settlers who only knew him as the discoverer of the New World. Apparently, though, Columbus himself, during his lifetime, had continued to maintain that he had not discovered a new world, that he had just discovered a route to the East Indies, which were part of the archipelago of Southeast Asia. Now, Magellan's circumnavigation of the world, which we'll get to in a moment, that took place after Columbus's death. But even before Magellan, a lot of other people besides Columbus, including one of Columbus's cartographers, were pretty convinced that they had discovered a whole new world. By 1510 or so, a few years after Columbus's death, almost everyone agreed that they had found a new world by sailing west rather than finding the east coast of China. But some people began to wonder, can we sail around this new world and then get to China? In 1519, Spain commissioned a Portuguese explorer named Ferdinand Magellan to lead a Spanish expedition that would go around the New World and try to find a trade route to the East Indies, which was the general term, right, for those islands that are off in the southeast corner of Asia. Magellan had already been there once in the service of Portugal, but he had gotten there the first time by sailing to the east, going around Africa. This time, he and his small armada would be going west and trying to sail around the New World. In Magellan's previous visit to the East Indies, he was not the leader of that expedition. He was just a sailor on a fleet of 22 ships that sailed to India. They were there to install the first Portuguese viceroy, that's kind of like the guy who's above the governor, of India. In that expedition, the Portuguese fleet had several battles with Indian fleets. One of the battles was incredibly significant, but it was a battle that I had never heard of until I started researching this time period. And I guess most people haven't heard of it either, but I saw a claim on one of the websites I read that it was one of the top 10 most important naval battles of all time. It's known as the Battle of Diu, that's spelled D-I-U, and it took place in 1509. The Portuguese fleet, which numbered, as I said, about 22 ships, including Magellan's ship, faced a combined fleet of Indian and Muslim ships that numbered around 40, but they also had a whole big number of maybe 100 smaller boats. But it turned out to be a Portuguese victory, with the Portuguese basically destroying or capturing all of the Indian and Muslim ships without losing any of their own. And this basically left the Portuguese in control of the entire Indian Ocean. Portugal maintained that control for over a hundred years, eventually losing control of it to the Dutch and, and then to the English. But in the big picture, the Indian Ocean was controlled by European navies from this point on until the very early days of World War II when the Japanese Navy defeated the British Navy and took control of the Indian Ocean. 
Now, the Battle of Diu gave Portugal control of the Indian Ocean and control of most of the Indian coastline, where they set up many colonies and trading centers. Magellan lived there for at least eight years, and he also sailed on beyond India into the islands of the East Indies. Apparently, he sailed almost all the way to Papua New Guinea to a group of islands called the Spice Islands. Now, this is important, and I'll explain why in a moment. After this journey, Magellan sails back to Portugal, and he tried to get the king of Portugal to let him lead a fleet that would go west and go around the New World and get back to the East Indies that way. But the Portuguese king refused, so Magellan went to Spain, and Spain commissioned him and gave him five ships to make the attempt. In 1519, Magellan and his small armada set sail. They sailed across the Atlantic to Brazil, and then down the east coast of South America. They spent a couple of months in a harbor in what is now Argentina while they waited out the southern winter. And during that time, there were a couple of mutinies, but Magellan managed to keep the fleet together. They also lost one ship to a storm, but then the other four ships continued south. Eventually, they found their way to the very southern tip of South America and found their way through the complicated maze of islands that are down there and around the tip of South America through a path that is now known as the Strait of Magellan. After enduring the very stormy seas of the southern part of the South Atlantic, Magellan was amazed by the peaceful, calm seas on the other side, and he gave that ocean the name it still holds, the Pacific Ocean. They were the first Europeans to sail into the Pacific. Now, they thought that they could get to the East Indies from there in only a couple of days, but it took them several more months. Eventually, about six months after they had left Spain, they made landfall in the Philippines. Now, this is really significant because the Philippines are just a little bit to the west of the Spice Islands. You got to go look at a map to see this, right? But if Magellan really did get to the Spice Islands on his first voyage, he was, at this point, the first person to have sailed all the way around the world. Now, there's some debate about whether he did actually get that far on his first voyage. But assuming that he did, he was the first person to sail all the way around the world. But he doesn't finish this particular journey. In the Philippines, Magellan and some of his crew were killed in a battle with the Philippine natives. And so the armada was down to its last couple of ships. Magellan was dead, and so the captains of these ships decided that they were going to try to go on. One ship was abandoned, and some of the crew including the captain of that one ship, Juan Sebastian Elcano, sailed on to the west. The ship they were on was called the Victoria, and they were heading for home. In September of 1522, three full years after they had left, Elcano and the Victoria limped back into the Spanish harbor of Seville. Of the 240 or so original sailors who had left on the expedition, only 18 survived. But these 18, including Elcano, were the first people to completely sail around the world in one voyage. And so now, it was considered a proven fact that the Earth was indeed a sphere, and a good bit more of the map of the world had been filled in. Spain and Portugal were the first countries to really seriously explore the new routes around the world. Portugal focused on their monopoly of the trade routes around Africa and India, but they also claimed and colonized Brazil. In Brazil, the Portuguese mostly found small, poorly organized tribes who are still living very primitively, especially by European standards of the day. 
The Portuguese brought in many slaves from Africa to work the land and build their settlements, which were mostly along the coast. Portugal's strategy overall was usually just to set up settlements and trading posts along the coasts of the places that they explore, rather than venturing farther inland. Spain, on the other hand, explored farther inland in the areas that they conquered. While Portugal was settling the coast of Brazil, Spain focused their attention on the other parts of the New World, specifically the islands of the Caribbean, the South American lands that were south of Brazil, and the mainland of Central America. One of the main Spanish efforts was in Mexico, where the most advanced native civilizations in the Americas had developed. In the Yucatan Peninsula, the Maya had developed an advanced Stone Age civilization, and up in central Mexico, the Aztecs had developed an even larger and more advanced, though still Stone Age, civilization as well. Let's talk about the Maya first. The Maya had never been a single unified kingdom, but they were rather a large network of city-states with mostly the same language and culture. The high point of Maya culture had come and gone more than a thousand years before Columbus came. We mentioned this briefly back in episode 27, what has gone on in the rest of the world while we've been talking about Rome for 12 episodes. Anyway, the Maya had built great cities, but many of those cities had been abandoned and lost to the jungle. The Maya still lived in large cities made of stone houses. I have a picture of one of those cities on the website. They had a written language, and it's one of the few pre-Columbian languages that has been deciphered. They had their own religious system, which included holy places, pilgrimages, and sacrifices, including human sacrifice. It was a pretty well-developed culture. You could kind of compare it to something like the ancient Egyptians or the ancient Babylonian Stone Age cultures. The Maya also fought amongst themselves, and they fought with neighboring tribes. Captured people from other tribes were often enslaved. At the time that the Spanish first started exploring the Yucatan, there were two main tribes of the Maya, and they were already at war with each other. The Spanish made allies with the Xiu tribe, that's X-I-U, and they used them to fight the Cocum tribe. In fighting the Maya, the Spanish were most effective along the coast because they could bring the cannons of their ships to bear on their enemy, and the Maya had nothing that they could do to counter the Spanish ships. The biggest Maya ships were large canoes, basically. And of course, the Maya did not have cannons or rifles, nor did they have horses, which were first brought to the Americas by the Spanish. Inland, the Maya mostly used ambush and retreat tactics against the Spanish, and they were somewhat effective that way. They fought with spears and stone-tipped arrows and stone tomahawks. The Maya were actually quite organized as a fighting force, but they couldn't beat the Spanish in open combat because the Spanish had guns and cannons and horses and armor. The Spanish also used a lot of other tribes' indigenous warriors, both as warriors and as support for their own soldiers. The Spanish in the Yucatan fought with the Maya for almost 200 years, finally defeating the last Maya kingdom in 1697. So from the beginning of the 1500s to nearly the end of the 1600s, the Maya and the Spanish were fighting. The Yucatan Peninsula was and still is rich in resources, including some gold and silver, so the Spanish were very interested in controlling it. But farther north was an even richer and more prosperous target the Aztec Empire. The Aztecs had developed a substantial and successful civilization in the central valley of Mexico, centered around their main city of Tenochtitlan. 
at the time when the Spanish first arrived in Mexico, there were probably about 200,000 people living in Tenochtitlan, making it by far the largest city in the Americas and one of the largest cities in the world. It was larger than London was at the time and probably larger than any city in Spain at the time. It was a very well-developed city as well, built on an island in the middle of a lake with two aqueducts providing fresh water. There was a long dike that separated the lake into two different parts so that the water around the city was always fresh water. And there were several causeways that they had built to get from the island to the shore. Tenochtitlan had wide paved streets, large temples, and a very large palace for the king, Moctezuma. The Aztecs dominated central Mexico, and they were often at war with the neighboring tribes. Again, as was typical back in the day, the Aztecs, when they conquered a tribe, they enslaved many of their captives. The Aztecs ruled over as many as 300 smaller city-states, requiring tribute of all of them, which made the Aztecs very rich and powerful, but also not particularly well-liked by their neighbors. The Aztecs, like the Mayas, had a very elaborate religious system that included a lot of sacrifice rituals, including human sacrifices. They had temples, schools, and a permanent priesthood. It was a very well-developed civilization, although, like the Maya, they were still using Stone Age tools and weapons. The Spanish were somewhat aware of the Aztecs, having heard of them from the coastal tribes. The Spanish were also inspired by the legends of a city of gold, sometimes called the city of Cibola, and they thought perhaps that the Aztec city might be that city. Of course, we all know that that Cibola is actually under Mount Rushmore. In 1519, Hernando Cortes led a Spanish army of about 500 Spaniards, plus a growing number of anti-Aztec natives, on a march to Tenochtitlan. Cortes is a fascinating guy, notwithstanding his trouble with cursed Aztec gold, but he was as influential in New Spain as Columbus was, and he was also as reviled. Starting in Maya land along the coast, Cortes and his army marched inland, and they eventually found Tenochtitlan. Apparently, the Spanish were stunned by the huge city. I have a picture of a representation of that city on the website. The Aztec king, Moctezuma, allowed Cortes into the city. When Cortes arrived, he had about 500 Spaniards, some of them on horseback, which the Aztecs had never seen, and over a thousand natives from other tribes that were hostile to the Aztecs, and at least a few horse-drawn cannons. Cortes captured Moctezuma and imprisoned him in his own palace, and for a while, Cortes ruled the city through Moctezuma. Then, Cortes began to have the city torn down, building by building. There was, of course, a revolt, and in that revolt, Moctezuma was killed, but the Spanish prevailed against the revolt and maintained control of the city. Then from that point on, the Aztec city was systematically destroyed, and the Spanish began to rebuild a new city in the same spot that they named Mexico City. From 1521 to 1524, three years, Cortes was the governor of Mexico, or as it was called at the time, New Spain. The Spanish, eager for gold, explored all over Central America. They conquered and subdued tribe after tribe and converted many of the locals to Catholic Christianity. Some of this was by force, and some of it was by actual conversion. Apparently, Moctezuma's own daughter voluntarily converted to Catholic Christianity, and she stayed a devout follower of Christianity her whole life. Her Spanish name was 
Isabel Moctezuma, and she had a really hard but interesting life, including having an illegitimate daughter with Cortez. You should look her up. She's got a really interesting story. Anyway, by 1521, Spain had conquered the two largest civilizations in Central America, the Maya and the Aztecs. From here on, Spain would go on to conquer tribe after tribe, eventually controlling all of Central America and all of South America except for Brazil, which was controlled by the Portuguese. At its peak, the Spanish Empire controlled about 5 million square miles of territory, which was way more than the Roman Empire had controlled, which was about 1.9 million. And it was not as large as the Mongol Empire under Kublai Khan, though, which had controlled about 9 million total. I have a pic of the extent of the Spanish Empire on the website. Also, there's some pics of Spanish conquistadors, map of Columbus's voyages, and a pic of the recreation of the city of Tenochtitlan. And maybe there's a secret map to the lost city of Cibola. As I said, by 1521, Spain had conquered the biggest empires in Central America. But the real devastation was just beginning. Besides horses, cannons, and armor, the Spanish also brought disease. There are some estimates that old world diseases killed as much as 90% of the population of the New World. It's more likely that it was less than that, but it does seem to be true that an enormous number of Native Americans died from things like smallpox, tuberculosis, influenza, and cholera, and other diseases which the natives had no immunity for. There are some early reports from like the earliest English explorers like John Cabot that the eastern coast of North America was densely populated with Indian cities everywhere along the coast. But by the time that later settlers, like the pilgrims on the Mayflower, got there, the native tribes were few and far between, and there was a lot of unoccupied land. That would make sense, of course, if 80 to 90% of the native population had died from disease. But it's kind of one of those historical mysteries. Since most of the native tribes did not keep written records of this sort of thing, it's really hard to pinpoint how many people there really were before and after the Europeans made contact with the New World. A lot of ink has been spilled about how brutal the Spanish, Portuguese, French, and English explorers were to the Native Americans. Native Americans were killed, captured, tortured, and enslaved by the hundreds of thousands, and they died by the millions because of European diseases. I'm not in any way trying to defend this behavior, but we do have to remember as we think back on this that by the standards of the 1500s, this was basically what you did worldwide whenever you conquered another people. This is what the Native American tribes did to each other. Every culture, including the Native American cultures, conquered and enslaved their enemies. It's not until the Enlightenment, which is still 200 years away at this point, that anyone anywhere in the world starts questioning hey, is this the right way to do things? I mean, if you back up just a few hundred years, you have Genghis Khan and Kublai Khan ruthlessly conquering the world, killing and enslaving millions of people. And they're not held to the same standard as Columbus and Cortes and the Spanish were when they conquered the New World. If Genghis had had a navy and had sailed to California and conquered and enslaved all of North America, it would have just been seen as business as usual for Genghis Khan, right? At least in the ancient world. Same with the Romans, who conquered and enslaved almost all of the Mediterranean, and they're seen as one of the best empires in all of human history. I should also point out at this point that prior to the Portuguese landing in Africa and prior to the Spanish landing in America, 
The native tribes in both of those places were frequently at war with each other, and there were reports of massacres of whole tribes by other native tribes. When the Portuguese and Spanish showed up, there were already tribes that were ready to sell their neighboring tribes into slavery. It's not like the Spanish or Portuguese introduced slavery. They were just new markets for existing slaves. That being said, it's clear that the Spanish and Portuguese took this slavery thing to a whole new kind of industrial scale, and they made it a much more one-sided deal than it had been in the past. It hadn't been that one-sided probably since the days of the Roman Empire. And the other side of this is that Spain and Portugal were supposed to be Christian countries, and there's definitely a sense nowadays that slavery is against Christian principles. But in some ways, this wasn't really the case back in the 1500s, especially in Catholic countries. The Reformation and the Enlightenment hadn't happened yet at this time, at the time of the explorations of the Americas, but those two things changed the religious and moral structure of Europe, especially Northern Europe. And in many countries that were affected later by the Reformation, slavery began to be outlawed. So yeah, now we look back on the slavery of the 1500s and our view of it is that it was wrong, but they just didn't see it that way back in the 1500s. Ancient world values were different than modern world values. Now, just to be clear, I'm not saying that slavery or mass destruction of your enemies is in any way good. It's just that back in the 1500s, it was normal. I'm not condoning slavery in any way. My own personal opinion is that no one should ever be enslaved or should ever have been enslaved, and that the world would be a much better place if slavery had never, ever entered into it. But back in the day, that was just what you did. You conquered your enemies, and then you enslaved them. It's not what you do now. Nowadays, you conquer your enemies, and you put a McDonald's on every corner, and you make your enemies work at minimum wage or something like that. Anyway, at the end of the 1500s, Spain controlled all of Central America, parts of North America, and all of South America except Brazil. Part of the Spanish legacy is that they explored all over these areas, mapping much of what they explored. And in addition to looking for gold, there were also many thousands of Spanish missionaries, especially from the Catholic orders like the Jesuits and the Franciscans, who went along with these explorations and they began to interact with the local tribes. In many places, like Mexico, most of the tribes were eventually converted to Christianity. Now, there are some examples of the Spanish forcing this on tribes, especially in the Caribbean, but in much of Central America, it was voluntary conversion brought on by the teaching of the Spanish Catholic missionaries. All over Central America, South America, and up into parts of North America, Spanish missionaries established small outposts called missions. These missions usually had several buildings and sometimes fortifications. Converted natives would often come and live at the mission, and these mission stations often became the beginnings of towns, which then became cities. In the United States, for example, San Antonio, Santa Fe, San Francisco, and Los Angeles all got started as Spanish missions, as well as countless other towns throughout the Americas. We'll come back to some of these Spanish missions later in a different episode when we get to talk about the history of the American West and also the history of Texas, where we will talk about the Alamo, which was one of those Spanish mission stations before it became a fort for a bunch of surrounded Texans. Anyway, these mission stations served both the purpose of spreading the Catholic Church, but they also helped Spain spread its empire over Central and South America. But farther up in North America, 
the Spanish had some very serious competition, including the Dutch, the French, and Great Britain. We'll come back to those colonial competitors in a few episodes, but before we can get there, we have to talk about some incredibly important stuff happening in the old world, including the earliest reformers, Martin Luther and the full Reformation, the history of hell, Queen Elizabeth, Shakespeare, and the beginning of the Enlightenment. I know that I said a little while ago that a lot of stuff happened right around 1500, but the pace just doesn't let up for the next 200 years. It's going to take us 10 episodes just to get through the next 100 years. Anyway, next up, we go back to the old world, and we're going to look at the very beginnings of the Reformation.